Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio in New York, I'm Charlie Sykes. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's new live national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump administration. We have to start with the biggest story of the day, of course. Rumor, the German Shepherd won Best in Show at the Westminster Dog Show, which is really big news in the Sykes household because we have a German Shepherd. And i got to tell you, my, my German Shepherd Moses, this was big deal for him. German Shepherds get a lot of bad press, and I have to say, point of tremendous pride. Um, we're going to be talking about, um, the obviously, the, the Trump-Russian scandal. We're, you know, how, how big a scandal is it? You know, sh- should there be an independent investigation? Do you think this is important, or do you think it's a distraction? Or is uh, President Trump right? Is the bigger scandal the fact that there are leaks? So we're going to open up the phone lines. Uh, you know, give us a call at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. You can also send us a tweet using hashtag Indivisible Radio. We're also going to be talking about the limits on presidential power should the court step in. We're going to be joined by John Yu coming up in the in the next half hour. But believe it or not, we are just 24 days into this presidency, which I find remarkable, and nothing slowed down. One of the hardest parts I find analyzing what's going on is uh, I'm trying to look for historical parallels or precedents, and then realizing that at least in this country, we don't have any. Every day we see something that is quite literally unprecedented, and I know the word literally is misused all the time. We have a president who's decided to pick a fight with the federal judiciary and with the national intelligence community, and it's not working out that well so far. In in the second half of the show, again, we're going to be talking about the, the, the courts, but we're going to start with the the breaking news, which, you know, I, you know to keep up with it, uh, you know, I thought maybe we'd be talking about presidential treats, treats, uh, tweets about Nordstrom, but uh, what we've seen is this scandal that has now led to the resignation of the national security advisor after just 23 days, which is a new world record for non-longevity, if that was a word. And then, of course, last night, this report in the New York Times of evidence of contacts between the Trump campaign and Russian intelligence. So my advice would be, if you're planning on writing a spy thriller involving the president, you you might want to save your notes for the time being because reality is trumping anything you could possibly come up with, including these questions, what did the president know? What did he? When did he know it? Was General Flynn freelancing, or did he keep Trump in in the loop? You know, why did they take so long to inform the Vice President of the United States? We have a very, very special guest to hash through all of this. We're joined now by Karen Tumulty, the national political correspondent for the Washington Post. Good evening. How are you? Great to be here. Although I must say, I, I, you missed an opportunity to coin a, a word here: longevity. Longevity. Okay, I will give that to you. You you can do this. You know, um, I was uh, watching your Twitter feed today. You know, there's been a lot of questions about the role of the press in in the new era, whether or not investigative reporting was going to make a difference anymore. Is there any doubt in your mind? The General Flynn would still be national security advisor if the Washington Post had not broken the story about his conversation with the Russian ambassador. Um, 
I think I have no doubt at all because um, the thing that seems to have really done him in was was you know misleading Vice President Pence and you know sending him out to say information that was not true on national television. Well, according to Vice President Pence's own own spokesman, um, the vice president himself didn't learn about this until he, he read it in the Washington Post. So why, why do you think he really res- resigned, though? Because, again, this is the part that confuses, I think, a lot of people. Number one, the Trump folks knew about this for weeks before doing anything about it. They did not think that it was important to tell the vice president about it. And they're also saying that, that uh, General Flynn did nothing wrong by talking with the Russian ambassador about sanctions. So do you think that – are you buying the cover story that it was just the fact that he had misled Pence? don't know what to buy, because uh, as of yesterday, Sean Spicer, the president's spokesman, was saying from the podium that the reason he was fired, and he said he was fired, fired. was that he had lost the, the confidence of the president. And then today we have the president get up and say that, that you know, Flynn had been mistreated by the media and by the intelligence community. So, you know, yesterday he was firing him, and today he was blaming other people for mistreating him. Yeah, let me play that cut, because this this is one of the many remarkable moments that we've had so far into this presidency. Donald Trump fires Mike Flynn last night, and then today has this to say. Michael Flynn, General Flynn, is a wonderful man. I think he's been treated very, very unfairly by the media, um, as I call it, the fake media in many cases. And uh, I think it's really a sad thing that he was treated so badly. I think in addition to that, uh, from intelligence, uh, papers are being leaked, things are being leaked. It's criminal action, criminal act. And it's been going on for a long time before me. But now it's really going on. And people are trying to cover up for a terrible loss that the Democrats had under Hillary Clinton. I think it's very, very unfair what's happened to General Flynn, the way he was treated, and the documents and papers that were illegally, I stress that, illegally leaked. So, Karen Tumulty, you would never know, unless you knew the context, that Donald Trump had just fired this man the night before because because of a breach of trust. So how do you explain that performance? What do you make Um, make of that? Well, there's there's no way to... to draw, you know, find anything that's inconsistent in the lines that are coming out of this White House over the last 24 to 36 hours. And then there's this odd argument that the president started making today that he, he sort of conflates the media, the intelligence community, and somehow all this being about Hillary Clinton's loss. I've been in Washington for, a, you know, a fair amount of time now, and usually when agencies start leaking, it is because they are trying to send a message and they are trying to get a message out that they do not believe they can get out through regular channels. Well, let's talk about this, because it does appear that the intelligence community is in open revolt against the administration. Is, is that an unfair characterization of what's going on? Uh, no. I mean, in a you know, it, it's. I think the evidence is here every every day, and you know, and again, it is playing out in the media. But this is 
this is, you know, not the media's fault, and the media is not an actor here except, you know, in reporting this. Yeah, I mean, if the media reports were untrue, then President Trump wouldn't have had to fire his national security advisor. But if, in fact, you do have the intelligence community in open insurrection against the, the, the president, whether or not you support Trump or not, should we be bothered about that? I mean, doesn't doesn't the president have at least some point when he's saying, look, you know, these leaks are illegal leaks and they're coming from, you know, the, the spy networks that are apparently trying to score political points against the elected president of the United States? I, yes, I think it is. It is definitely something to be concerned about, and it's especially something to be concerned about, you know, in a situation if we were in some kind of, you know, full blown national crisis. If the intelligence community and the president of the United States and his administration, his White House, didn't feel like they could be sort of straight shooters with each other and with each other as opposed to at each other, um, you know, that that would be a real problem. You really get a sense that it's kind of a drip, drip, drip here. And that, that my, you know, one of the things that I, I thought when the first story came out about uh, General Flynn, the story that was in the Washington Post was, oh, my goodness, the intelligence community is, is now signaling, hey, we've been listening in. We actually have transcripts of these conversations. It was a little bit like, you know, calling up the Trump administration and said, you know, we know what you did last summer. Click. Right. So. And, and the fact that General Flynn, who was a former head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, would have had these conversations and not known or at least assumed that someone was listening was, was shocking. And then, of course, we have this latest report suggesting that the ongoing, you know, depending on which uh, account you you, uh, you read, the ongoing, perhaps frequent communications between members of the Trump campaign and Russian intelligence, which, which is something that had been long suspected. So this leads to the question, what do you think Congress is going to do at this point? What are their options? Um, there are a couple. I've, one thing is to do it within the intelligence committees, uh, which is the, certain, the option that we're hearing specifically from a lot of uh, Senate Democrats, because intelligence committees know how to handle classified material. Another option would be to, uh, you know, put, set up some kind of select committee, uh, as Senator Lindsey Graham has suggested. Uh, uh, you know, it would be a, something involving both houses. But there's also what I talked to Lee Hamilton today, who was a chairman of the 9-11 Commission, and he thinks this needs to be taken outside of Congress and a you know separate independent body be, be set up to look into it. You know, to, in, in, in at least one light, it, it occurs to me that this might be the politically smart thing to do to Republicans, to, for, for Republicans to do, to basically outsource this so this is not a headache, that it is not a distraction, that they're not going to be accused either of undermining President Trump by their own base or of covering up for President Trump. Uh, do you sense that there would be any interest in that, or is, or, is, or is that too radical a step for Republicans who have been so reluctant to break with the president so far? Well, I think that Republicans are nervous about what exactly it is that would be found in this. But I've got to tell you, I have been spending – I've been sort of thinking back to the Iran-Contra affair because uh, that – you know, a lot of people have suggested that this may be, you know, building toward that kind of political crisis. 
Well, in the Iran-Contra affair, when when after Attorney General Meese had to get up and announce that it turned out that some of this money from these arms sales to the Iranians had been diverted illegally to the, the Contras in Central America, five days after that, it was Ronald Reagan himself who called for an independent commission, the Tower Commission, which, you know, got to work very, very quickly. It had its work done within three months. And, um, you know, it basically got to the basic – there were still, you know, there were still a select committee in Congress. There was still an independent council. But this was a case where Ronald Reagan actually – got out in front of what was a sort of building scandal in his administration. I, I think that's a very, very interesting model. We're, we're talking with Karen Tumulty, national political correspondent for The Washington Post. Now, you, you've watched a lot of transitions. All administrations have their rocky starts. But put this in context for us. What is the level of dysfunction that we are seeing right now? There, there is no context for this. Um, I think that, you know, we have have not seen you know, anything like this in terms of starting with the fact that at at 6 a.m. you are already hearing from the president over Twitter. And um, there's been a lot of, you know, he he uses Twitter to to strike back at his, his enemies. He uses Twitter to complain about Nordstrom dropping his his daughter's line. What we have not seen is much of a sort of coordinated strategy yet to actually advance the issue agenda that the Republicans and that President Trump ran on. We have not seen any progress in, for instance, repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act, which they said would be essentially job one. Instead, we're you know, just just seeing this this kind of hour by hour chaos. You know, there was a quote in uh, in the New York Times article about the level of turmoil. They quoted General Tony Thomas, head of the military's Special Operations Command, who expressed concern about the upheaval inside the White House. And this was a direct quote: "Our government continues to be in unbelievable turmoil. I hope I hope they sort it out soon because we are a nation at war." Asked about his comments later, General Thomas said. As a commander, I'm concerned our government be as stable as possible. I have to tell you, I cannot recall an active serving member of the military saying anything remotely like that in my lifetime. And and don't forget who he is. He's he's the head of you know it's the Strategic Operations Command is basically running the you know the wars against you know against all the the bad guys in in really scary parts of the world. The, uh, you, I'm sure you watched the press conference today with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. Trump, um, once again, is, is going to uh, conservative outlets, Christian Broadcast Network, uh, Town Hall. I, I personally like the concept of, of going to you know, new, new outlets, but, but neither of those outlets asked about the biggest story of the day. So what did you think as you were watching this, that here you have the first time the president of the United States is holding a press conference after he has just fired his national security advisor, and nobody in the press asks directly about it. Well, I, th- I think that, you know, th- this is, first of all, this is something that is, is not un- unprecedented. I, um, I I can recall during the height of the, you know, of the Monica Lewinsky scandal, President Clinton used to stand up and in news conferences and, and go right over the network guys in the front row and head back to the, to the foreign press in the back. Um, but it's it's not a strategy that that works for a long time. I mean, you can 
you know, you can you don't get the uncomfortable question asked today, but that does not mean that the issue goes away or that the press quits asking. I think it's very unlikely this is going away. Let's let's uh, let's go to the phones for for questions on this. I threw out a, a number of questions, including how serious people regard this scandal and what's a bigger scandal: the the leaks from the intelligence community or the the substance of what we are talking about. Let's go to uh, St. Louis, Missouri. Grant, you're on Indivisible. Good evening. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I uh, I do think it's a big deal. Um, of course, everyone's trying to downplay it. But just for the fact that it's Russia, and because of Trump and his cabinet's alleged ties to Russia, business deals, or what have you, um, I think it should be made a big deal, and the media should be should keep doing the job they're doing. Also, for relying on the hypocrisy of uh, the Trump administration when during the campaign he was essentially begging Russia or any other hackers who had uh, leaked info on you know on Hillary and her emails or um, a lot of a lot of the members of the GOP calling for um, intense investigations of the whole Benghazi ordeal. It's just the uh, like I said, the level of hypocrisy is just uh, just outstanding to me right now. Well, it it is rather extraordinary, isn't that uh, Karen Tumulty? That uh, here you had uh, during the campaign, Donald Trump was one of the most enthusiastic consumers of leaked materials. I don't know how many times uh, at his rallies he held up uh, something from WikiLeaks, inviting the Russians to do more hacking and. So apparently he he has no problem with leaks that are coming from through Russian intelligence, but very deeply upset about leaks coming from American intelligence. That would be a little bit hypocritical, wouldn't it? That well, again, it's uh, I think hypocrisy is also something not not particularly <laughs> no. new in Washington. But you do get the sense that the president is still very much in campaign mode as he is as he is here. I mean, he not only said that this whole this whole you know business with the Russians is being concocted to cover up Hillary Clinton's loss, but we when he was asked about anti-Semitism at his at his news conference today, he somehow found that as an opportunity to brag about the number of electoral votes he got. It seems that that's the, sort of the go-to answer to every single question. He eventually got around to addressing the question of anti-Semitism, but only after he bragged once again about his election victory. Um, we're we're going to uh, you know continue taking calls here because I want to I want to get some of your questions as as well. Our number is eight four four seven four five talk. You're listening to Indivisible Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of uh, rather extraordinary change. I'm Charlie Sykes. My guest is Karen Tumulty, national political correspondent for The Washington Post. We're going to hear more from her, take more of your calls right after the break. Stay with us. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. 
there's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. From WNYC, this is Charlie Sykes on Indivisible. My guest is Karen Tumulty, who is a national political correspondent for The Washington Post. You know, Karen, it, it, it strikes me that this scandal is different than some of the personal scandals. This is not about uh, sexual misconduct or whether somebody has you know, pocketed some money. This is a fundamental issue of our relationship with a major world power, and it really goes back to the the mystery that has, I don't know, I, I think puzzled people for several years. What is behind this strange bromance between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin? What could possibly explain his absolute inability to ever say anything critical about a a despotic thug like Putin? Um, I think that is the big question, a, a big question in all of this. And, and you know, I wouldn't even want to begin to speculate on, on what the answer is, because it's it's just hard to figure out. And by the way, this is something that where Donald Trump finds himself on the opposite side with just about every single member of, of his own party. I thought it was very interesting. The Speaker Paul Ryan this morning when he was on Morning Joe went out of his way to say, I am a hawk on Russia and rejected any sort of moral equivalency between what we do and what uh, what the Russians have done. Let's go back to the uh, phones. Uh, let's go back to uh, Columbus, Ohio. Aaron from Columbus, Ohio, you are an indivisible. Good evening. Yes, hello. Good evening. I appreciate you uh, taking my call. Um, yeah, I just wanted to point out, as another caller just mentioned it a moment ago, in regards to uh, kind of the hypocrisy of Trump. I remember um, one of the new city kids played, uh, you know, Trump mentioning how uh, a couple of years ago Russia was number was the number one threat to America. And um, throughout the campaign, you know, Russia was one of the coziest buddies of Donald Trump. Uh, Paul Manafort having those ties to uh, the campaign, and then, you know, we uh, move on to the presidency, and now we have this uh, general, um, what is it, Kelly or Flynn? I'm Flynn. Flynn, thanks. Yes. You know, involved with that. So, you know, I told the lady over the phone that I believe that, you know, the, the, the ties that this administration has with Russia, I believe, are one of the main reasons why these leaks are coming out of the White House. And, uh, you know, I believe this is the tip of the iceberg. A lot of stuff has yet to hit the fan. And I actually appreciate the fact that, uh, you know, some of these people are, you know, putting their jobs and their well-being alive to, you know, flush this stuff out to the public because, um, you know, there's a lot of things that are crooked that are going on in this White House. And, you know, we're only starting to smell the, uh, 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 again, the tip of the iceberg as to, what else might be uncovered here? So well, that that's you know, again, yeah. I mean that 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 goes back to the, the the suspicion, which seems to be incredibly widespread, that there's just something else out there, and and I guess I, I 
if the administration were to take this more seriously and and deal with it more proactively, maybe they could move beyond it. But it's almost as if the Trump admin that, that Donald Trump himself does not understand that this, in fact, may be you know the the cancer at the heart of his presidency, and he doesn't appear to be making any steps to to move past it. Also, it's it, 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 what's extraordinary is is that you're using phrases like that, and we're we're not even what four weeks into 20, this. Twenty four days. <laughs> no, it, it, exactly. And um, I still keep coming back to the the whole question of of why exactly they decided to fire him this abruptly for you know a president that is so reluctant to admit that he's ever made a a a mistake in this particular case is this also though um Karen Tumulty part of this larger question of the the using another phrase from a different presidency the credibility gap that this president has the problem is is that, that every single day there's another issue of truth, of alternative facts, of whether or not the spokesmen are telling the, the truth. You know, this really does play into that very serious – I mean, talk about a, a, a potential problem going forward when this administration has to do the actual heavy lifting of policy that they have burned through so much credibility in such a short period of time. You know, what I don't quite know, though, is the degree to which they have – whether they have burned through credibility they already had, and that, you know, people who supported Trump, I, I don't see, at least thus far, any big signs of, of slippage there. Well, that is – that's the problem. Is there a breaking point for Republicans in Congress, however? Well, that that's a good question. Um, we are seeing more and more voices uh, calling for some kind of investigation of, of this whole Russian hacking and attempts to influence the election. And, um, you know, I, I do think that that is where, you know, we, we could see things getting gaining traction. You, you don't see it in other arenas, but, th- but this is something that is just so fundamental to what most Republicans believe. Yes. Let's go back to the phones. Let's go back to uh, Pittsburgh. Doug from Pittsburgh, you are on Indivisible. Good evening. Good evening. Go ahead. You're on Hello, the Hello, Charlie. Hello, Doug. I understand that you're a former um, analyst, a Russian analyst for the Air Force. So what do you think is going on here? I think this is high political theater, and I think the American public should be asking themselves, what exactly are we being distracted from? Let's let's think about it, Charlie. Who was the flavor of the week or the year last year? It was ISIS. Uh, who was it the year before that? I really wasn't paying attention. Probably Syria. Um, suddenly, Russia. Russia's, Russia hasn't been putting double-digit uh, increases in their defense budget for the last 20 years. That would be China. But we need China to make our cheap plastic stuff. So where, where did Russia come from? Where where did Russia just bolt out of the blue? I mean, did they suddenly just, you know? Okay, well, who's responsible? Gas? Well, then who's uh, responsible? You're, you're you're thinking there's some four-dimensional chess here. So who, in fact, is pushing Russia forward to distract us from something else? I, the people that want to repeal Dodd-Frank, the, the insurance companies, so they can wheel and deal with uh, Affordable Care Act repeal. I don't know, but the the tax-paying, pension-receiving, or eventually receiving American public should be saying, "What what is happening? That this is all this is splashed all over our screens." Well, right now. I, I I think part of it, I, you know, with with all due respect, uh, I don't know what you think, uh, Karen. Um, this is self-inflicted. This this is something that I think the Trump administration has done by going out of its way 
to make it clear that there's some sort of a special unexplained relationship between <laughs> between uh, this administration and, and the Russian regime. Well, and also the fact that, you know, another bit of information in all of this that we haven't really talked about is the fact, too, that we now know that they were warned and the the president himself was told that the Justice Department had concerns that that General Flynn was, was, um, you know, was vulnerable to blackmail as a result of the conversation that he had had with the Russian ambassador before the inauguration. Um, and they sat on that information rather than being proactive about it, r- rather than, you know, even for that matter, telling the vice president about it, apparently. I, th- I think that's a tremendous tell, don't you, that the fact that knowing all of this, they still stuck with him. They would have, using another term from a previous administration, they would have covered this up had it not had that story not been broken by The Washington Post. And and again, when you go to why leaks are happening, I think that 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 is. And again, these that's I I have not broken these stories. I do not know if even what my who my colleague sources were in this, but I I do know in Washington as long as I've been here, that usually when you see patterns like this, it is because people are frustrated that that. You know, what they see and believe needs to be done is not being done through normal channels. Let's go to uh, let's go to Staten Island. Laura from Staten Island, you're on the air. Laura? Hi. Um, thank you. So, yeah, I do think it's a really big deal. I think that the fact that he lied to the FBI, he most likely violated the Logan Act. We don't know that he lied and, to the FBI yet. We, well, don't, we don't know that for sure. Okay, we don't know for sure, um, but I think having a congressional investigation that will help suss out those details is important, and I think it's also very unlikely that he was acting alone, Um, and I think that other players in this, whatever it was, this conversation or this plan are going to come out with time. And I think the fact that at the RNC... He, you know, mocked Hillary Clinton and said that if he had committed a fraction of the supposed crimes that she had, he'd be locked up. I think we should call him on that bluff and at least have an investigation and see if he is guilty of crimes. Um, Karen Tumulty? Uh, well, I certainly you, – you bring up the Logan Act. That, that is a, a, a law that's been on the books, what, since the 1700s, and it's it's never actually been the subject of a prosecution – but um, I, I do think there is the, – the White House denies that the president um, had anything to do with, with or knowledge of uh, Flynn's conversations with the Rus- Russian ambassador. But um, that is certainly a subject that I think would clearly be revisited um, in a congressional investigation. In the few minutes we have, I want to just ask you a kind of unrelated story. Uh, the first member, first uh, appointee to the cabinet uh, by the Trump administration uh, went down today. Um, the uh, Secretary of Labor candidate with, withdrew. Uh, what what uh, what made this one different? What uh, what sunk uh, Puzner, Puzder, which I've never got to pronounce again? Um, was was it Oprah Winfrey? Did Oprah Winfrey take out a member of the Trump cabinet? 
apparently that was, um, you know, at that point they lost four Republicans and, and may have lost as many as a dozen should it come, have come to a vote. But it was it was a, another brick in the wall because Puster also was facing, you know, questions about his labor practices, the fact that he had not paid taxes on, on a household worker, um, and then these the subject of this Oprah interview, which is allegations by an ex-wife of, of abuse, uh, he, it's, he just sort of had. There was just too much going on. I think. Yeah, it was just it was just that one extra thing. But I don't, if, if you had had a pool early on, would you have picked that that would be the nominee that wouldn't get through? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Not not at all. So what do you make of Kellyanne Conway's performance over the last two days? On two consecutive days, she goes out, gives the public information about the uh, the, the NSA issue with, with, with General Flynn, only to be flatly contradicted by Sean Spicer. What is going on inside the White House? Is, is Kellyanne Conway, is she really in the loop? Is she, is she being sent out with misinformation? What, what is your take? It is just really so hard to figure this out because, you know, on the one hand, she uh, two nights ago was saying that, that, you know, Flynn had the full confidence of the president. Then seven hours later, he's fired. Then the next day, um, you know, the White House is trying to make it very clear he was fired. And then the next day, the president comes out and sounds a lot more like Kellyanne Conway as he's talking about how how Flynn was so mistreated by the media. So I just think that um, I don't know if what we're seeing here is is an argument, you know, the two sides of an argument that is going on within the building or whether it is just so chaotic in there that nobody knows what is going on or what the president is thinking from one hour to the next. And we are only on day 20. Karen Tumulty, thanks so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Charlie. It's great to be here. It has been it, it has been great. Now we're going to take a, we're going to take a short break here, Karen. We're going to take a, um, oh oh yeah. Let's go right to uh, let's go to, right to uh, to John. You uh, th- th- this is also something that uh, given the pace of change, if the first half hour was talking about the president being at war with the intelligence community, we now have the president also apparently at war with the judiciary. And John Yu is currently a law professor at UC Berkeley and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. And I want to talk about e- executive powers. I mean, uh, Professor Yu knows a lot about those. Uh, those He's the author of Crisis in Command, A History of Executive Power from George Washington to George Bush. He served as Deputy Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel under George Bush. And uh, he joins me on the line. Good morning, sir. How are you? Oh, hi, Charlie. Thanks for having me on. Well, now you actually um, wrote a very, very interesting piece um, about uh, about executive power recently in the New York Times, and you have in the past taken a very expansive view of the powers of the, the president, and I think you know many of our listeners know that. But you also argued that that even taking that position that you've taken, you think that Donald Trump has gone too far. What do you mean? Well, first, uh, thanks. I'm glad you enjoyed the piece okay. and. The thesis, basically, in short, is that uh, the president has great power, but they're mostly aimed at national security and foreign affairs. And in the domestic sphere, the president's power is more narrow and is secondary to Congress. And so what's bothered me in the, as you, as you point out, it's only been a few weeks of this administration, but what's concerned me is that 
A number of things that President Trump has said that he can do or will do uh, fly into in the face of what are really Congress's prerogatives. So, you know, an obvious example is this talk about building a border wall uh, and forcing the Mexicans to pay for it by imposing a 20 percent tax on uh, Mexican exports to the U.S. or a tariff of some kind on Mexican uh, money sent uh, money sent by Mexican Americans back to Mexico. Now, under the Constitution, only Congress can pay for the construction of any federal building or wall or installation, park, walking path. All has to be appropriated by Congress. And the president just can't unilaterally impose taxes or tariffs on trade. That's wholly up to Congress's powers under the Commerce Clause. So it's things like that. I think, I think President Trump keeps saying he can do this, he can do that, but he really cannot on his own uh, sort of build a border wall or you know, terminate the NAFTA agreement, which was passed as a statute by Congress, or, and I assume, I assume we're going to talk about this in a little bit, uh, some aspects of the immigration order I think are legal, but other parts importantly, might be unconstitutional, too. Yeah, I want to, I want to get to that. I want to read the, 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 what I thought was the most interesting part of your, uh, your, your column, where you, you describe your, your own contribution. You said, as an official of the Justice Department, I followed in Alexander Hamilton's footsteps, advising that President George W. Bush could take vigorous, perhaps extreme measures to protect the nation after the September 11th attacks, including invading Afghanistan, opening the Guantanamo Detention Center, and conducting military trials and enhanced interrogation of terrorist leaders. Likewise, I supported President Barack Obama when he drew on this source of constitutional power for drone attacks and foreign electronic surveillance. But even I have grave concerns about Mr. Trump's use of presidential power. Is, is, is part of that because you're beginning to be concerned that, that the presidency has, in fact, broken some of the bonds? Do you, do you, are you rethinking um, any of the positions you've taken in the past on this? Well, it's more that he's that, that the president, our current president, Donald Trump, is taking those vigorous powers, which are really under our Constitution, aimed at things like war, uh, crises, emergencies, and he's turning them to issues which are not emergencies or crises or war. So I think, as, as you read there, I think President Bush and President Obama have the broadest latitude of power under the Constitution when they're fighting a war, just as Abraham Lincoln did during the Civil War. But I think that when you're talking about immigration, there's no great emergency. There's no, there's no war that's uh, just triggering this immigration issue. And under our Constitution, the Supreme Court has held for about 100 years now, more than 100 years, 150 years almost. Immigration is solely in the hands of Congress and Congress can delegate some powers to the president, but the president can't just unilaterally decide what to do with immigration or not. Well, I want to get I want to get into that and get your reaction when we come back. We're going to uh, uh, take a very short break, and we'll be back with your calls and more from Professor John Yu. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible.
This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. And I'm Charlie Sykes, broadcasting from WNYC. We're talking with John Yu, a law professor at UC Berkeley, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. And the question we're asking is, do you want the courts to limit executive power? This is this is going to be a real test, I think. Our number is 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. Uh, professor Yu, one of the things that uh, that, that I uh, took from, from your piece is, is your question, does Donald Trump actually understand how the Constitution works? You have some doubts about that, don't you? Yeah, that's a deeper concern in all this is not just the, the overexpansion of President Trump power on this issue or that issue. I don't see any sign that uh, President Trump has an idea of what the president is supposed to do under the Constitution. No, the Constitution does not set the president up to respond to everything the people want and to take care of every problem. You know, the president t- takes an oath to uh, support and defend the Constitution. And so he has to have, doesn't have to be a law professor or even an attorney. I would actually argue law professors and attorneys are ill-suited to be president compared to some of our most successful presidents. But they have to, at least when they come into the office, have an understanding of what their function is under the Constitution, what their office is for. And I see Trump almost sort of like hyperactively responding to this event or that event or upsetting this arrangement or that arrangement, but without an overall vision of what his office is really there for under our Constitution. Well, I want to play for you a clip from Stephen Miller, who the uh, Trump White House thought it was a good idea to push out uh, on all the talk shows last Sunday, and I'm sure that you saw that. But he uh, he very aggressively pushed back against the courts limiting the the president's power. Let's play this uh, this soundbite. Well, I think that it's been an important reminder to all Americans that we have a judiciary that has taken far too much power and become, in many cases, a supreme branch of government. One unelected judge in Seattle cannot remake laws for the entire country. I mean, this is just crazy, John. The idea that you're going to have a judge in Seattle say that a foreign national living in Libya has an effective right to enter the United States is, is, is beyond anything we've ever seen before. The end result of this, though, is that our opponents, the media, and the whole world will soon see, as we begin to take further actions, that the powers of the president to protect our country are very substantial and will not be questioned. And will not be questioned. John Yu, your thoughts when you heard that? Well, I thought that's just uh, mistaken and hyperbole. That's not to say that the president and his supporters are barred from criticizing the courts. Mm -hmm. And I think, actually, you compare that and what Trump has said about the courts to what past presidents have said, and it's it's not any real contest. I mean, you've had presidents like Lincoln or FDR say that they will not carry out judicial decisions or they will try to change the membership of the court or attack the court as living in the past and mean to modernize, uh, get out of the horse and buggy era and things like that. But I think there's a proper time and place for presidents to draw on their authority to challenge the courts. And it's only over the greatest moments of controversy. Uh, we got to keep in mind that this immigration order is just a temporary pause in immigration. The district judge just issued a temporary restraining order And the appellate court here, out here in San Francisco, where I am, 
only if she refused to temporarily stay that order. This is not a big deal when it comes down to the major issues confronting our country. And so I think it's a misuse. It's a waste of presidential power to exert all of this force and rhetoric against what to me is a very small judicial decision. Do you think this will go to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court? It could, but I think if it does, that that means that President Trump is even further dissipating his energies and distracting himself and his administration from his own agenda. I mean, the wise thing to do, I think, would be to accept the loss out here in the Ninth Circuit and withdraw the order, let everybody with a visa and a green card back in, and then issue a new order, a new, more modest but legal order. Uh, And that would make the whole thing go away and probably meet most of the security concerns that the administration is worried about. You, you know, you, you, you mentioned that other presidents have, of course, been highly critical of judges, including when President Obama called out the, the Supreme Court with the justices sitting right there during one of his addresses to a joint session of Congress. But uh, President Trump has taken it a little bit further, referring to so-called judges and his attack on the, the Mexican judge. I guess, do you get a sense watching the judiciary that that maybe there's part of a larger judicial pushback against Trump, that the courts are looking for for a a pretext to basically make the point that you're making, that, that in fact, there is a Constitution, that that there are limits to his power? Oh, yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I hadn't thought it quite like that, but I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, You could, because, you know, the problem with Trump's and uh, Mr. Miller's overreaction and a direct attack on the courts is that it almost obscures how far the courts actually stretched to try to block President, Obama, uh, President Trump's order. There are actually severe problems with the way the court took up the case, the fact that they said Washington state could basically sue on behalf of immigrants abroad, aliens abroad who have never been to the United States, have no status here and have no constitutional rights under our system. Uh, there's legitimate grounds to criticize the courts. But I, and I think part of it is, I think, and, you know, this is a court here that was made up of judges appointed by both Republicans and Democrats. It wasn't really a partisan split. Uh, I do think that the judges were worried uh, that President Trump was really trying to go too far. The sad thing is that if Trump wasn't trying to operate the government by shock and awe and did this in the regular course and took his time and issued, he could really get basically 90 to 95 percent of what he wants. Let's go, to, uh, let's go back to the phones. Let's go to Bethesda, Maryland. Derek, you are an indivisible. Good evening. Hi, good evening. Great show. Um, I, I think it's really rich that you have somebody like Professor Yu now uh, talk about limiting or, or suggesting that Trump has gone beyond the limits of executive power when he himself was the architect of very aggressive executive power. And let's not forget that he helped draft the legal, the attempt at legal justification for torture. Let's not use the euphemism of an enhanced interrogation. Okay, well, this is, this is what so makes I, this, I, by I the way, Derek. Ask him Derek. if he's changed his mind on torture, if, he's, if, he, well, if he thinks that perhaps he, what he did was wrong. Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, that, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, uh, Professor Yu, because it is interesting, given your expansive view of the executive in the past, that you've written this piece. So, your thoughts? Well, first, uh, you know, thanks for the call. I'm glad <laughs> that uh, people have such good memories. <laughs> I think that the basic point I'm trying to make is that in foreign policy and national security, 
That's where the president's powers, because he is the commander in chief and the chief executive, that's where they are the most expansive. And so I don't think that the advice that we gave to President Bush was wrong. I don't think, if you're going to be consistent, that President Obama was wrong to use drones to go even farther and try to kill, not just detain and interrogate, but let's say, but kill members of al-Qaeda or ISIS. I don't think, however, that vision of the presidency is what the framers intended for domestic affairs, for things like immigration or building a wall or trade agreements. I think when there's time to deliberate and to discuss and to build a consensus like domestic issues, then you don't need that uh, ability of the president, as Alexander Hamilton described it, to, to be decisive and quick and speedy and unified and unitary. Those are his words. Uh, you don't need those attributes of the president to come to the fore. But in national security and war, like the, the weeks and months after 9-11 attacks, I think you do. Let's go to uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. Gary, um, you are on Indivisible. Good evening. Hi, thank you. I've got actually two things, and I hope I can get them in. Um, um, yeah, NPR got knocked tonight, the news media, about a report on um, the, the Russians again. Um, the, they had the meeting in Florida. If he wants to talk about a meeting in Florida, he okay, had I, a lot of people there that didn't have no clearances on anything. Okay, yeah. you're, you're off topic here. I just want to go back to uh, Chris from Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, you're on Indivisible. Good evening. Hi, good evening. So do you, do you think the court should limit the, pow- the executive powers of the president? Do you want to see that? I, I don't want to see them necessarily limiting the powers of the president. I, I think he should remain within the Constitution and, and so should they. Um, but I, I, I do think that is important to have a judicial review. You know, I thought, I thought one of the most interesting things about the Ninth Circuit uh, decision, um, Professor Yu, was the, the, the Justice Department's initial claim that the, the order was unreviewable, which I thought was a rather extraordinary claim, but also obviously a tactical mistake. What did you think about yeah. that? When they, when they went and they I, told the judges, you have no power to review the president's action at all. Yeah, I think that was a mistake, not just tactically, but just uh, on the constitutional view. I think that there are some decisions which are called political questions, which sometimes do involve foreign affairs and national security, which are not reviewable by the courts. For example, the courts have never reviewed the question of, does Congress have to declare war before the president starts military hostilities? But immigration does not fall within those category questions, because this is, this is not an area where there's a fight between the president and Congress over who has power. The Congress has the constitutional authority exclusively to control immigration. And so the question is really here, just how much power did the Congress delegate to the president when it gave him the statutory authority to say uh, the president can decide to block a certain class of aliens if he thinks it's in the national interest. But there's no clause or anything in that law, and the immigration law that says that decision is not reviewable by the courts. Now, there's a more subtle argument you can make if you're the president, which you could say is, well, the reason I you know, set this class of aliens, these seven countries on this list that to be blocked, is based on classified information. And courts should be careful before they ask the president to reveal classified. But that's not the argument the government made. You know, that's not what the government claimed. And the court even said, we'd be, listen, we'd be willing to listen to classified information and we'll have a closed hearing and keep everything secret. But the government didn't even produce any 
reasons or evidence why I picked these seven countries you do need to, to, have bar, evidence. to bar. You know, there's a lot of talk. We're about to go into a big fight over a U.S. Supreme Court nominee. There's a lot of talk about liberal versus conservative judges. Uh, I, I wanted to get your reaction to uh, the... First of all, the, the nomination, but also my sense that these these issues are not going to break down specifically on liberal versus conservative, that one of the real divides that's going to be interesting will be watching judges that def- that have the sense of deferring to executive power versus those who are more skeptical, which brings me to Neil Gorsuch, who in fact has shown a a rather, um, I would say, a propensity to be skeptical of grants of extensive executive power. Where do you think a guy like Neil Gorsuch is going to come down on this question of executive power? We should recognize the last guy who wants the president to be attacking the courts right now is Neil Gorsuch. Exactly. I mean, the poor guy is, you know, Trump is saying, these judges, so political, so sad, and then he's saying, oh, but please confirm this guy to the Supreme Court. I mean, he's in a very uncomfortable, uh, terrible position, really. Uh, and so I, I thought, I think I think you saw that he, he told senators that Trump, you know, the president who nominated him is demoralizing the judiciary with those kind of comments. That's pretty extraordinary. That, um, that is extraordinary. It's another one of these unprecedented things where a presidential n- nominee is actually criticizing the president. Yeah, I think I, I hope that uh, I'm sure Judge Gorsuch realizes that a president can withdraw the nomination at any time he wants to and change his mind and put someone else there. I wouldn't put it past President Trump to do that. Well, but I, actually, yes. <laughs> to be serious, though, to answer your question seriously for a moment, I think Gorsuch actually is not a conservative in the sense that Scalia or Bork were conservative. Gorsuch is not a follower of judicial restraint. You know, Scalia, Bork, people like that, their view was that the problem with constitutional law was judicial activism, Mm -hmm. that judges were striking down laws, they were making up rights. Gorsuch, and and that courts should defer to agencies and to the legislature and their judgments, sort of raising the issues we were just talking about. And Gorsuch actually has written opinions calling for the courts to reject these ideas of deference, especially to the administrative state, and that courts should be willing to use their own judgment to review whether the executive branch has used delegated powers. So it's actually kind of interesting. If Gorsuch were on the Ninth Circuit panel that heard President Trump's executive order, he would be the last guy to say we should defer to President Trump's judgment. He's a kind of, He actually wrote an opinion in an immigration case saying courts should not accept or defer to the judgments of the executives. We should exercise our own judgment. And I, so I, and I think he's also, uh, just on a second point, Gorsuch is really interested in natural rights and natural law. He uh, went off to Oxford and studied under uh, one of the world's leading theorists of natural rights. This is a theory that I think animated the framers and animated and, and led uh, Abraham Lincoln to argue against the constitutionality of slavery. But this idea was very much uh, in conflict with the Bork-Scalia view of the Constitution, because natural law and natural rights are not in the text of the Constitution. And judges in the past have used those views, uh, natural law and natural rights, to strike down laws passed by state governments and even Congress. And that was something that Bork and Scalia actually very much stood against. I, I find this absolutely fascinating, and I, and I hope the listeners, because I, I think there's there's a tendency to to see people on in, in the right-left continuum, and you've done a really good job, of, I think, of pointing out that Neil Gorsuch, in many ways, is the least Trumpian nominee that he could have made. That 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 yeah. th- th- this that Donald Trump has put someone on the court who, far from being 
a, a, a rubber stamp would be probably as likely or more likely than any of the other candidates to actually say, no, uh, Mr. President, you are not permitted to do that. Yes, that's right. I say, you know, he uh, has been very, very skeptical. If he weren't the lower court judge, he would not have been bound by Supreme Court precedent, and he wouldn't defer to agencies. And that's essentially what Trump is asking the courts below to do on the immigration order, is to defer to his judgment about the operation of the immigration laws. And Gorsuch has actually written opinions in the immigration law saying yes. that he rejects that view. He would want to, He's a kind of guy who would want to know what was the evidence that the government used to pick the seven nations uh, that are, are, are blocked under the immigration order. But he has said it's even more than that. He has said he would extend that attitude to everything that the executive branch does in the administrative state area. Uh, let's go and see if we can get one more call in here from uh, Queens, New York. Ben from Queens, you are an indivisible. Good evening. Hi, how you doing? Good. Chuck? I, first of all, I love indivisible. Thank and you. I think that this is a very important conversation that needs to be happening, and thank you to NPR for making it happen. Thank you. And second of all, I think that the judiciary system, our founding fathers purposefully created the judiciary system for events like this, when someone came into power and was trying to enact too much power. And it's it's really unprecedented that you have someone who is a president or, or, you know, in the upper tier of our government saying, well, you should do this because I say so. Well, not totally and, unprecedented. Pardon? It, not totally unprecedented, but, uh, you know, it's it, it, it's certainly well, our, our our generation's re-education in the whole concept of checks and balances, isn't it? Well, yes. I think uh, you're kind of breaking up, but I think I heard what you said. And, I think ben, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we're, we're actually running out of time. No, I, but but I do think that this is the role of courts, um, pr- Professor. You, I, I I do think there's kind of a teaching moment here for people to understand that, in fact, we do have three co-equal branches of government. Well, I think that uh, Trump is scrambling the usual, as you were saying, the conservative liberal differences. They're going to be. Uh, conservatives like me, I think, who are very concerned about what President Trump is uh, doing, and I don't see it as inconsistent with supporting President uh, okay, Bush's John, views. John, you, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much. Um, that's all for Indivisible tonight. This is our new national conversation about life during the first 100 days of the Trump administration, and assuming that we're still around seven days from now, we'll be back. I'm Charlie Sykes. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.